Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Listen to the word of God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So reads God's Word, finishing with a very familiar passage of Scripture. Growing in sanctification is a subject that's, that's very important to all of us. To all of us who've received Christ as Savior, living into or or living out, however you would most want to describe it, living into or, or living out the righteousness of God that is ours by faith in Jesus is a very important subject to us. In fact, it would be hard to name a higher priority that we hold in common than that. Once we become aware of our sin to the point where we recognize our need to trust in Christ as Savior, once we recognize the truth expressed in in the most familiar verse in this passage today, namely that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, once we've recognized that to the point where we actually trust in Christ, receiving His grace, to reconcile us to God and to remove our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Once we've recognized the need for that, growing in holiness, which is the short definition of sanctification, that word that's used in this passage, growing in holiness is the outcome for which we hunger and thirst most. That's what we want to the point where if it's not happening, or, or just if it's not happening quickly enough, we can get discouraged. 
And we can begin to wonder if we've truly been saved at all. If we truly trusted in Christ for our salvation. That's how important this matter of growing in holiness is to us. We might call it different things, but when it's absent, we miss it and we wonder what it means about us. It's one of the things that motivates our singing of a song like, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, while on others you're calling, don't pass me by. Where does that request come from except in having confessed Christ as Savior and not seeing the growth in holiness that we expect? should result from that. And it generates a concern. And we sing a song like that together and we feel it together because we recognize that in ourselves there is not great confidence that the work of God is being completed. When you're asked the direct question, is Christ pleased with how you're living? What's your natural reaction to that? <laughs> what, do you know, what do you know about me that I didn't think you knew? Um, why are you asking? Did you see me doing something? Did I say something that caught your attention? You see all, all the insecurity that comes out of that? It's not the answer, oh, I am because I know that I am worthless before God. I know there's nothing that I can do to earn his favor, and that's what I mean by my worthlessness. It's not just a self-image question. It's a recognition of my standing before God. And if, if Christ isn't mine, if he hasn't taken my sins from me and absorbed the wrath of God that I deserve, I've got nothing. So is God pleased with me? Yes, he's as pleased with me as he is pleased with Jesus. Because by faith he has clothed me in his righteousness. There's no boasting there except in the grace of God expressed through Christ. But wow, just thinking about the question can put in front of us the importance of this whole subject of sanctification, what it means to us. I don't think there's anything we desire more in common with one another as believers in Christ than growth in holiness, sanctification, fearing it when it's absent. We learned last week, however, that growing into an, uh, that that holiness, growing into an understanding of what it means to have trusted Christ as Savior, growing into our freedom from sin, we might say, to use Paul's language from the first half of chapter 6 here, growing into our freedom from sin, our sense of understanding of what that is and how to do it, isn't a quick or easy task. It doesn't happen quickly. We have to learn what it means to be free from that bondage just like an emancipated slave had to learn what it meant to live out his freedom. And that wasn't an easy road. But it's a great illustration and example for us. Living into that freedom, living out that freedom involves at its very heart, at its very root, preaching to our own hearts and to our own minds and to our own wills the truth of our freedom in Christ. That's what we heard in last week's text. It was right there in that swing verse 11 
earlier in this chapter. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You might read that and say, consider yourselves. You mean like count yourselves, reckon yourselves, decide in your mind that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does that mean my salvation depends on me? Like, no, it doesn't at all. By no means. Paul's answered that question clearly. What he's saying by that is that this truth is so foreign to the way that we think and the way that we feel that if we're not preaching it to ourselves regularly, there is no hope of our escaping the bondage to sin that still has a grip on our hearts and lives because we still live in the flesh. If we're not preaching that truth to ourselves regularly, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because Jesus' death has paid the penalty for our sins and has freed us from that bondage, if we're not preaching ourselves to that truth on a regular basis, it will not sink into our hearts. And we will live differently than we want. Paul himself will make that clear as we move into the next chapter. It's true even of an apostle because he too is still in the flesh as he's writing that text. So that's the heart of it all from last week, the foundation of moving out of our bondage to sin and into the freedom that has been purchased for us in Christ. We also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We don't continue in sin in order to see the greatness of God's grace. That's the question Paul answered last Sunday. Rather, we entrust ourselves to him in pursuit of his righteousness. We lean hard into his grace, we might say, trusting him to enable our obedience to the praise of his glory. That's what the Christian life turns into once we've been set free from sin, bondage to sin, by the work of God in Christ. In summary then, Paul has already argued in verses 1 to 14 that we were freed from bondage to sin. Now he argues in verses 15 through 23, our passage today, that we're free to pursue righteousness. He's moving slowly through this so we get it. And don't make the mistake either of thinking that God's grace isn't sufficient to spring us from bondage to sin and enable our righteousness or to think that because we have to engage our wills in pursuit of that which God has given us, that it really depends on us entirely. He's going slowly to help us avoid both of those two errors, and he's doing that with each of these questions that he's asked. Because you see, he's made these points in the first and second half of chapter 6, both of them in answer to a question that he's posed. In verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Two questions move this argument along in chapter 6 to help us understand our freedom and enter into it. The difference between these two very similar questions but notably different, the difference between them might be illustrated well by paraphrasing them. I would suggest this could be helpful. Verse 1, shall we continue to sin because we should? Really odd question, but that's what he's asking. Should we continue to sin because we should? Namely, it brings more grace. So, should we continue in sin because grace abounds where sin abounds? 
In fact, it superabounds where sin abounds. And the second one here in verse 15, shall we continue to sin because we can? Namely, we're under grace, not under law, and nothing can threaten that standing. So that's what Paul is asking. Should we continue and sin because we should? Can we, should we continue and sin because we can? And his answer to both is the same. Verse 2, verse 15, by no means. That is not the response to the grace of God expressed in Christ. We unpacked his reasoning for the first answer last week. Now we'll do it for the second this morning. And our bottom line today, we're going to be slaves to something. That's not the whole bottom line. That's the beginning of the bottom line, and it will work its way out in how we should respond to that truth. But that part needs to sink in as well. We're going to be slaves to something. We'll talk about that and then what should result in it if our minds and hearts and wills have been shaped according to the gospel. What are we slaves to if we've trusted in Christ as Savior? So let's look into this text today under three headings, and you see them there in your bulletin. First of all, the fundamentals of our slavery, verses 15 and 16. Then the freedom of our slavery, intentionally a play on words there, the freedom of our slavery, verses 17 to 19. And then the fruit of our slavery, verses 20 to 23. Let's just walk through this text. We won't pay a whole lot of attention to that outline, but it will be helpful to, to discern the, the flow of thought through this text, I believe. So first of all, the fundamentals of our slavery here in verses 15 and 16. After, after asking and answering his key questions here, verses 1 and 15, and particularly now focusing on the 1 and 15, Paul Paul poses a follow-up question that spotlights a, a, a simple and practical insight on the one hand, but a profoundly theological insight on the other hand. And both of them come at the same time as he poses this follow-up question. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And in this case, either of sin, on the one hand, which leads to death, or of obedience, on the other hand, which leads to righteousness. This is a great question. I love simple questions that actually open your eyes to massively important truths. This statement that we're going to be slaves to something is really one of the implications of this question. But do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience that leads to righteousness? We can wonder as we read this what exactly Paul means by present yourselves, but that's not that hard to grasp either. We still use similar language today. We can talk about giving ourselves to something. That's, that's essentially what Paul means here, giving ourselves to something. It means that we're all in with that something. We've given ourselves to it. We can even ask each other, wow, you've given yourself to that. We'll give up other things in order to do it. That's what presenting yourself means. Kirsten Pearson gives herself to the playing of the piano. While others of us are doing other things, 
she's sitting in front of a piano practicing. That's why she plays piano better than most of us in this room. She's given herself to it. That's, that's what Paul's talking about. And because of who we are, because of how God has made us, we give ourselves to things. It's really important. It's an expression of our humanity that we give ourselves to things. We have to. We need to. It's, it's our, our identity, really. As image-bearing creatures, we're driven to give ourselves to things. Life loses its meaning for us if we're not giving ourselves to something. We're aimless. That's how we can often describe it. Here, Paul is saying that giving ourselves to sin will make us really proficient sinners. We'll get good at it. It'll be second nature. It'll be first nature to us to just give ourselves to sin. And that will eventually lead to the ultimate payoff of sin, namely death. That's what happens when we give ourselves to that which we, by nature, desire. He's contrasting here then giving ourselves to sin with giving ourselves to righteousness. Pursuing the one versus pursuing the other. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we might say, if we want to borrow Jesus' language from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Hungering and thirsting after it, pursuing righteousness Precisely because we've died to sin, verse 2, with Christ, verse 3, and have been raised with him to walk in newness of life, verse 4, to walk in obedience to him, verse 17. So rather than being slaves of sin, which leads to death, we can be slaves of righteousness, which leads to life, verse 16. Verse 22. Now, granted, this is an odd way to use the word slave or slavery. And this, with this, we want to move into verses 17 to 19 and the freedom of slavery. This is an odd way to use the word slave or slavery. And we will get into that in just a moment and co comment on it. But I want to do something else first. First, Paul gives proper attention to the amazing truth that we actually have an alternative to being slaves of sin, which leads to death. And I don't think we want to move past that too quickly. I think that's something we want to grasp and understand. We have actually been given the freedom to move away from slavery to sin, which leads to death. Look at verse 17. Thanks be to God, he writes here, on the heels of verse 16, and posing that question, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That is an intriguing statement. 
that says much more than is evident just on the page here. It's translated differently in different versions, and that's how you can see that it gives us more than we expect. New American Standard translates it much the same as ESV does here. TNIV says, talks about the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That's how it translates that particular portion of the verse. New Living Translation, this teaching which we have given you. So there's something about this uh, to which you were committed phrase that, that, that's, that's multifaceted. It's got something to it that's hard to translate because you hear that that's where the words are differing in these different translations as they press into it and try to understand what it's telling us. Young's literal translation, I love this. It's not written to be readable. It's just trying to bring over into English as, as clearly as possible the, the, the language of the original. And so it's very roughly worded in different places as it seeks even to gain word order, recognizing that has some importance in both Greek and Hebrew. Young's literal translation says, the form of teaching to which you were delivered up and that's the first place where we get a sense that it's different than just something we're committing to, this teaching. And that actually gets closest to the original, both in terms of the definition of the word and the tense of the verb there, to which you were committed. Paul is giving thanks to God that these Roman believers, once slaves of sin, are now obeying from the heart the teaching to which they've been given, the teaching to which they've been delivered up, the teaching to which they've been, if we use the primary definition of this word, handed over, not the teaching to which you have committed yourself, as we might hear when we read it, but the teaching to which you have been committed by another. Since slavery is the context here, it's as though you've been sold by one master into the possession of another. That's the very idea. That's the word that would be used if that were being described here. This master has given you up to that one. But you are still under the ownership of the master. This is just one more of those many many places in Scripture that confirm for us how our salvation takes place. That it's a, a work of God on our behalf. That it's granted to us as a gift. The way we've heard Paul say over and over again already in this letter. Chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 5, verses 15, 16, 17, 6, 23. Right here in this passage, a gift. It's recognizing salvation as a gift. So, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been given up. And having been set free, free from sin, there's another, by the way, of those same insinuations, and they're always in the same direction, saying salvation is a gift from God. We receive it. We don't choose it or decide for it. We, we receive it as a gift. Verse 18 starts with another one. And having been set free from sin, 
You have become slaves of righteousness. Again, in context here, from the heart, obedient to the truth to which you've been given over, and now slaves to righteousness from the heart. That's just a description of what that obedience looks like. It looks like you're a slave to righteousness. Then comes this interesting statement at the beginning of verse 19, which gives a bit of a disclaimer regarding Paul's use of the word slavery. I said we'd get back to that in a minute. Well, here we are, all right? Paul's use of this word slavery could, could sound odd to us and could actually trouble us a bit, and it, it has troubled many, honestly, as they've read this passage, unfamiliar with the Word of God, not, not grasping how to put slavery into context here. And Paul gives a bit of a disclaimer as he uses the word to describe the Roman Christian's passion for righteousness, for, for hard obedience to the gospel. He writes here in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms. We might say he's using a faulty illustration. This, this illustration isn't going to, it, it, it's not going to nail it in every single category. It's just a good way to think of this to, get, to gain an understanding of what he's talking about. I had a professor in seminary who said, you can't make the metaphor walk on all fours. I have absolutely no idea what that means. <laughs> but I do know it means that you're pressing the metaphor farther than it goes. And what Paul is saying right here, you can press this metaphor farther than it goes, slavery. So I'm speaking in human terms. It's a faulty illustration. But I'm speaking in this way because of your natural limitations. I, I want to accommodate this to you so that you understand how this works. That's what Paul is saying. I want to read a a paragraph, or actually two parts of a a, a section from Doug Moo that really helps put this into perspective, because it's an important thing in the flow of this argument. He says regarding this human terms and natural limitations, he says, Paul's point appears to be that human nature produces a weakness in understanding that can be overcome in this life only by the use of analogies and often imperfect analogies. He went on to write, Paul recognizes that his language could be interpreted to mean that Christian experience bears the same marks of degradation, fear, and confinement that were typical of secular slavery. But if we leave out those particular characteristics... Life in the new realm of righteousness and life does not mean that a person is given over, or I'm sorry, does mean that a person is given over to a master who requires absolute and unquestioned obedience. And to make this point, the yet imperfect image of slavery is quite appropriate. You are under the ownership of the God who has saved you once you've trusted Christ as Savior. And while slavery can be an objectionable illustration, it captures the human idea and accommodates our understanding if we're able to take out of it the negative aspects of slavery. And that's what Paul is saying at this point. It's an imperfect illustration, but I'm going to use it because it's beneficial for you to understand how your salvation works, how your sanctification works. This this growth in holiness that is so vitally important to you to understand. I want you to understand it well. Then Paul gives his purpose for employing such a faulty image. 
And this is where his teaching in today's passage is most practically helpful, I think. This is where his risk pays off in using this particular illustration. Verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. If you want one charge from this passage to follow, something that tells you what to do, it's verse 19. Make no mistake. This is the secret of our finding our freedom. This, once we have preached the truth to ourselves that we are free from sin, here's where we go with it. This is our next step. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. His objectionable illustration continues on in this, using our pursuit of sin as sort of a gauge of our pursuit of righteousness. It's a stunning reality that Paul presents here. and should catch our ear. But here's where the surely imperfect imagery or image still communicates clearly to us limited humans under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Paul's not apologizing for saying this. He's setting it in context so we can understand both what he means and what he does not mean. The very energy and zeal and focus with which we pursued self-gratification before we were handed over to this new standard of teaching in the gospel sets the standard for the energy and zeal and focus with which we now pursue obedience and righteousness and life from the heart. There's the charge. That's what Paul is telling us. This is what our obedience from the heart looks like. We give ourselves to the pursuit of righteousness, recognizing it leads to sanctification and life. We do it not because our life depends on it. Our life depends on the sacrifice of Christ. But having been set free from bondage to sin, the very hard work of considering ourselves free of it involves preaching that truth to ourselves and then responding with this pursuit. Just going after righteousness and sanctification and life. Now, in this final paragraph of verses 20 to 23, Paul gives us his reasoning, his, his ground for this unusual word of instruction that he's just finished. Turns his attention to the fruit of our slavery. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Well, that's an understatement. It means you had no interest in righteousness. You were free from righteousness altogether when you were in your sin. You had no hunger, no thirst after righteousness. Verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Paul asks. <laughs> and that, again, is a great follow-up question. Again, we're still asking questions like this today. It's as though he's given a premise and then asked a question. You pursued self-gratification. You pursued it to the point of pressing the limits of self-gratification. 
How did that work for you? That's what Paul's asking. How did that work for you? Is that satisfying? We still ask this question today. We know precisely what we mean by it. You pursued self-gratification, pressing the limits. How did that work for you? And he's adding the almost unavoidable observation here that most of what we pursued for self-gratifying ends brought at least as much shame as fulfillment. In fact, in all likelihood, it's brought no fulfillment at all. Not of any lasting sort. All of that pursuit of self-gratifying behavior has not paid off with anything worthwhile. That's Paul's point. Whom do you know who was a cut-up during their college years, chasing all the foolishness of those days, who's still proud of it by the time they're 30? They're ashamed of it. They grieve the lost opportunities. And they have good reason for that. Those pursuits were were not just time wasters. They were opportunity wasters. And and they were well beyond that. Ultimately, they were self-destructive. Paul tells us that himself. Why? Verse 21 ends, for the end of those things is death. The end of those things is death. There's, there's the ladder, you're, there's the wall your ladder is leaning against when you're pursuing those ends. That's what Paul is saying. Then verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, that growth in holiness that we long for. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's there's the payoff right there. There's the payoff. We've been given over to the teaching of the gospel. Thanks be to God So in response, in expression of that thanks, we give ourselves over to pursuit of his righteousness, hungering and thirsting after it through obedience from the heart to his teaching, which leads to sanctification and eternal life. Do you hear how that pulls the whole passage together? We've been given over to the teaching of the gospel, thanks be to God, verse 17. So in response, in expression of that thanks, we give ourselves over to pursuit of his righteousness, verse 18, 
through obedience from the heart to his teaching, back to verse 17, which leads to sanctification and eternal life, verse 22. Everybody loves a good person, admires them, even in many respects wants to be like them. And everybody fears, everybody dreads, everybody even despises the things that cause someone's life to go off the rails, as it's so often called. And invariably, those causes for going off the rails are some form of self-gratification, usually extreme self-gratification, things of which even the one who's pursuing them is ashamed, not to mention family and friends who increasingly, as that behavior persists, just sort of backs away and grows quiet and can't refer to the person very often. It's a painful experience seeing a life come unglued in front of your eyes. Seeing a life go off the rails. It's, it's a helpless feeling. Many of you in this room today know that feeling. Some of you know it from the inside as ones whose lives have gone off the rails at different stages. Others of you know that pain and helplessness of being a family member or friend who has to stand and watch and feel like nothing's going to break through. Everybody loves a good person. And by good person, we talked last week, there's no one good but God. So if anybody's describable as good, it's this sanctification that's at work within them. That's what makes somebody worthy of admiration, worthy of imitation. And we see the difference. It's a profound difference. And yet we can live in this world in such a way that we think that it's really that good life that is undesirable and the pursuit of self-gratification which brings happiness. Some of us struggle with the reversal of values that's evident in the sexual revolution at the particular stage that we're in right now in our day. We're confounded by that. How, how does it get to the place where, where absolute reversal of the truth becomes not only feasible but common in terms of public perception and understanding? Well, my friends, it goes back a lot farther than that. That's just the fruit of other places where entire reversals have happened between understanding what is good and what isn't. Paul's talking about the fundamental one right here. That somehow the pursuit of self-gratification which destroys lives and families and circles of friends is still the freedom we want to tout in contrast to the freedom of sanctification and righteousness and life. God help us. There is indication of our need. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. Save me from that level of stupidity and foolishness. And help me to see the truth of your word. 
So, for some reason, even though all this is true that we've been saying, otherwise intelligent people often cannot see, or at least seem to see, that they need to be saved from selfish pursuits that destroy lives. They need to be saved from slavery to sin, which leads to death. so that they're free to pursue righteousness and sanctification and life. So many just keep pursuing their own self-serving aims even after they've come to understand their destructive emptiness. They just cannot grant that they stand in desperate need of rescue. But that's what Paul's helping us see in this letter. We all all of us, chapters 1 through 3, remember? We all stand in desperate need of rescue. It's precisely what needs to happen. These Roman believers, in fact, all of us, all of us need to trust Christ as Savior. We need to die with Him, to be buried with Him by baptism into His death, and raised with him from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 4. We need that. That's what we need. Amen? Why? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so ends this passage. And that's what this passage means for us. Should we give ourselves to sin because nothing can threaten our standing in grace? No! No! By no means. That's a one-way road to death. And we've been freed by God in Christ to experience His righteousness and holiness in life. Why would we not want to pursue these things with all of the zeal our transformed hearts can muster? Why would we not? To know them as fully as they can be known in this life, why would we not want that? Jesus died so that we can know these things by experience. Growth in holiness and righteousness unto life. And he's died so that we can know these things by experience even now while we still live in the realm of Adam and of sin and of death. We've talked about seeking God here as a church in prayer, a summary statement of our vision prayer, really. Seeking God to enable us as a church to know the fullness of all Jesus died for us to experience on this side of heaven while we're still in the flesh. That's what we would long to see happen among us. See the gospel so take root that a whole community of believers, a body of Christ, together, a local church, can know the fullness of all Jesus died for us to experience this side of heaven. That's the very end Paul is urging the church toward in Romans 6. It's the very same end. And our motivation to pursue it is best stated in the theme verse from today that's on the cover of the bulletin this morning. Verse 22, 
Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's the motivation right there. It's the payoff. It's the fruit. Should we pursue that together? Amen. Doesn't your heart long for that? Don't you yearn after that? In that description of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, doesn't it capture it right here? You agree? Amen. Let's pray toward that end, and then let's remember the body and blood of the Lord that has purchased this freedom for us and ask that in our remembrance of him, we would be, our remembrance would show itself as obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we have been given up. Pray with me. And as I pray, those who are serving communion, please join me at the front and musicians return to the platform. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every soul who is in the room with us this morning and for all of those who are listening by stream or who will listen by stream. And I pray that your spirit would be active through the ministry of your word in our hearts, calling unbelievers into saving faith, trusting Christ alone as the basis of their reconciliation to you and of their engagement now in the pursuit of walking in righteousness and sanctification in life. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, some long-term believers, in whom perhaps the embers of their love and devotion have grown cold, oh, Father, fan into flame that yearning within us, that hunger and thirst after righteousness so that we can experience Jesus' promise that we will be filled. And I pray that you would do it among us corporately, Lord God. I pray that you would do that among us corporately, together as a body of believers, because surely we aid one another along in this pursuit. Help us to know the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience this side of heaven. Help us to know this sanctification for which we all hunger and thirst. Thanks be to God for that yearning. Now fulfill it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.